One of the interesting things about weather and climate, uh, which is different than most other science disciplines, is that everyone experiences it. Mm -hmm. Every time you walk out your door, you feel the temperature. If it's raining, you feel the rain. When you're, you look up, you see the clouds. And you filter that through a lifetime of experiences. And so to, to a large degree, everyone has this huge collection of baseline knowledge. That was climatologist Brian Brettschneider. As a research scientist, he collects data and analyzes it. And within that mountain of data, he believes that many of the secrets of the world exist. But extracting meaning from all that information is a big challenge. It takes time, education, and technology. With its many research institutions located in Arctic environments, including universities and weather stations, Alaska is important in the global conversation surrounding climate change. Brian says that, in a lot of ways, the state is a research laboratory with a collection of intellectual firepower located in close proximity to locations that are experiencing quick and dramatic changes. Changes that affect our ways of life, societal infrastructure, transportation, and cultural identity. So here he is, Brian Brettschneider. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. You know, as I was writing these questions down, um, something that I just kept coming back to was, what exactly is a climatologist? That's an interesting question because uh, there often is a lot of confusion. But um, in the, the simplest answer is that a climatologist is someone that studies the climate. And, you know, we can think about the climate in several different uh, time scenarios. One is you know, what it's been like in the last 60 days or three months or six months. We can also talk about what what it was like 100 years ago, a 1,000 years ago, a million years ago. Mm-hmm. And then we can also talk about what we think it's going to be like in 20 years, in 100 years, in a 1,000 years. So in its simplest form, it's, it's literally just kind of a, a, the average state of the weather over a certain period of time. But that period of time... Uh, can vary greatly and it can vary in direction. And how do you decide which time period to focus on? You know, every climate scientist, uh, you know, has their areas of specialization. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there are there are scientists that do almost nothing but modeling what the, the, the climate's going to look like in 100 years. Um, I don't do that. Um, you know, I, I read papers and I understand the results that they come up with, you know, but that's something that, for example, you need, you know, lots of supercomputer time uh, to do. And, and it's a, it's a complicated endeavor that involves, uh, you know, large teams of researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other people in the climate realm that say, look at, um, you know, pollen and tree rings and other, you know, proxy evidence. Mm-hmm. of uh, climate. And that, that has a lot of overlap with other disciplines like biology and uh, anthropology and geology. Uh, so, it, you know, no one person, and this is really true of almost any discipline, no one person 
has uh, the ability or the time to be kind of an expert on everything. So you you tend to kind of focus on on a, a smaller subset and and try to uh, be be pretty good at, at that subset. Yeah, I think it's the what I've heard from geologists is the the fallibility of um, how long humans live. You know, we can only study so much in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's you know, the amount of knowledge that's uh, that's part of our, our you know our collective experience is increasing exponentially. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even if you are you know just learning and researching, you know, every waking hour, uh, you're falling farther and farther behind because there's just so much more information. Is that overwhelming sometimes? It can be overwhelming if you if you let it get to you, but that's why we have, you know, specializations. You know, it's like, you know, there's not one person that invented an iPhone. Mm -hmm. It was uh, the collective work of many people developing many different components, and and there were, you know, a few key individuals that that put them all together and had had that vision, but that vision doesn't work unless you have all the people, uh, you know, in those sub-disciplines uh, doing their research and, and building a solid foundation. And how would you say your job has changed over the years? I think like many people in, in all scientific disciplines, uh, the role of uh, computing, programming, uh, you know, big data, uh, is where we're at now. Uh, you know, we have this assumption, and I think it's generally correct, that uh, you know many of the the secrets of the world uh, are are hidden in these mountains of data that we've collected. And trying to extract meaning from that data uh, is an enormous challenge, but it is it, it is workable. It's a workable problem with um, with with skill sets that. Um, where there's an overlap between our understanding of these systems and then how to get this information out of the data. You know, what you just said, I think is really interesting that many of the secrets of the world is hidden in these mountains of data that we've created. Do you believe that we've already collected data that can answer some of these huge questions that we have? Absolutely, you know the the you know, answering the questions. Of course, it's only one part of the uh, of the big picture. Mm -hmm. But I think in many cases we there there is a disconnect between you know people think well we we don't really understand a lot of things, and of course we don't understand a lot of things, and there's there's always more to understand. But we do understand a lot, and we understand how many of the the processes of the natural world work and mm -hmm. trying to figure out how they interrelate is a separate question. So, you know, if, if we're going to try to say, figure out, you know, why, you know, uh, Alaska is warming like this or the precipitation is changing, you know, we wouldn't start with every piece of data from every discipline. We wouldn't start looking at, you know, fungus growth in South America. You know, that's not going to tell us anything. So, mm -hmm. so we use our our knowledge base that we have about how things generally work. And then we kind of squeeze that and, and try to extract uh, as much additional information out of it 
as can be reasonably gleaned. Mm -hmm. Right now, when you're looking at or thinking about the climate in Alaska, what are you thinking about? I'm thinking about the fact that we're teetering on the edge of a frozen world and a non-frozen world. And so much of Alaska is kind of right at the edge of the freezing line. And a landscape that is below freezing is greatly, vastly different than a landscape that's above freezing. Mm -hmm. So whether we're talking permafrost, uh, tundra, glaciers, you know, so much of what makes Alaska, Alaska is there because the temperatures for much or all of the year are below freezing. And so when we, we send the, uh, the, the state of the environment uh, to a state that's just a little bit above freezing, we have these vast changes. And these are changes that, that are meaningful to people that live here, that meaningful to their ways of life, to their cultural identity, mm -hmm. to infrastructure, to subsistence, to, um, to, to, to transportation. So just all these things that we, we take for granted and in many cases don't take for granted, um, are dependent on a, on a fairly stable climate. So mm -hmm. when you shift that, uh, you shift everything that uh, makes Alaska, Alaska. You know, again, I'm going to point out something that you just said that's interesting, and I'll probably do this throughout because I think that you just might be an interesting guy. <laughs> um, but Don't be so sure. But <laughs> You said that Alaska is teetering on the edge of a frozen world and a non-frozen world. Do we have any idea right now which direction we're headed? Well, I think as, as most people who are going to be listening to this know, uh, Alaska uh, and the entire world uh, is warming. Mm -hmm. And so we are, we're getting farther away from, from the freezing line. Or if we're below freezing, we're getting closer to the freezing line. And, and that's true, again, not just of, uh, of, for Alaska, but for uh, A, the entire globe, and B, for Arctic areas in particular, which are warming at, at, at something close to twice the rate uh, as the rest of the Earth. And so, you know, what, what we see here in Alaska uh, is, you know, is happening in northern Canada, in northern Europe, in Siberia. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's uh, more widespread than, than even what we see here locally. To what extent are climatologists looking at Alaska to better understand climate change? Well, Alaska has a lot going for it as a research laboratory. You know, we have you know, several outstanding research institutions that are physically located, you know, in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if there are, you know, any comparable universities, you know, in a, in a sub, in a permafrost environment, like say the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And so, you know, we have this, uh, this collection of, of intellectual firepower in close proximity to locations that are experiencing these, uh, these quick and dramatic changes. And so, you know, f for that, you know, uh, for, th for that purpose, for that, uh, you know, convenience, for lack of a better word, we have a lot of information about how things are changing in Alaska, potentially more than just about anywhere else in the Arctic. And if Alaska 
has a lot going for it as far as a place of research. What kind of research are we seeing coming out of it? Well, there are there are any number of research uh, activities. Um, there's a lot of activity looking at and researching Arctic sea ice. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, of course, um, there is sea ice in the Beaufort, Chukchi, and Bering Seas uh, and Cook Inlet at different times of the year. Mm-hmm. And it's a great laboratory to, uh, to, get, to get out and get on the ice and or put buoys out or do any kind of uh, any number of different kind of research activities with sea ice. We have lots of research with permafrost, uh, different types of permafrost. Uh, you know the very deep permafrost, the very the marginal permafrost. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, with, with tundra with vegetation changes and how that affects the landscape, how that affects uh, the ability of the land to retain water, how that affects the uh, wildlife just and the ecology in general. We have uh, you know ecological transition succession with uh, recently deglaciated areas. Uh, we have you know. Isostatic rebound from areas that are uh, where, where glaciers recently were and, and are now rising because that weight is, is is being removed, and then we also have uh, anthropological research and uh, traditional ecological knowledge partnerships with people in rural Alaska to talk about you know what the experiences are of of elders and other people in uh, in rural Alaska how they see the changing climate and how it's uh, affecting their lives. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the biggest threat to Alaska as a result of climate change? That's a really difficult question to answer. You know, if, if you're in a, if you're in a big city, you know, like Anchorage or Fairbanks, you know, if we warm up five, six, seven degrees, you know, we can, the, the adaptation to that isn't, to is, isn't that great of a challenge. Now, everything will look different and the lifestyle will be different, but you know, from a, from a built-up environment point of view, we would probably uh, be able to, to manage that without too much difficulty. But it, it really is the areas off the road network where people depend on a frozen environment, where they depend on rivers, frozen rivers for transportation. Mm-hmm. where the sea ice is not forming early enough to prevent coastal erosion with the big fall storms, uh, where you're going to have, uh, with, with, with warming temperatures, you might not have caribou or moose uh, migrating or, or, or residing in areas that are uh, key for you know, subsistence resources. You might not have seals you know, coming up to the coast in the Bering Strait. You might not have salmon in the same uh, abundance as you had in the past. So, so many of the things that make Alaska uh, what it is today uh, potentially just won't be there, or certainly won't be the same. And and but how to characterize that as you know as which ones are the most significant? Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to it's hard to say just one. And let me know if I'm if I'm off the mark here, but. You know, you're saying that the brunt of climate change will affect people who rely on frozen environments. You know, the, these these people that are outside of bigger cities like Anchorage and Fairbanks and Juneau. Um, but at the same time, it's people in those cities that are making the decisions 
for these environments that are frozen. And so at what point do we see it affecting the cities and then people in the cities being like, okay, I need to start paying attention and this is real now? Well, I think, you know, so every place in the world will, uh, will have experiences uh, and impacts from climate change, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're in uh, the lower 48 or in South America or Africa. So, so everyone will have different set of impacts that are, uh, are the most significant. And, and in much of the world, it's going to be sea level rise. Uh, and in much of the world, it might be droughts or uh, extreme weather events. Um, you know, in Alaska, it's, this is my opinion, it's going to be that transition from frozen to unfrozen for large parts uh, or all of the year. Mm-hmm. And and wherever you are in the world, the people that bear the, the most, the, the greatest brunt uh, or the greatest burden of dealing with the changing climate, it's the people that have, uh, you know, less tools at their at their disposal to uh, to adapt. And so, yeah, if you're in the big city, there's uh, there's a, already a lot of uh, investment in infrastructure. There's investment in in community resources and there and there's uh, the ability to, to deal with uh, a changing environment uh, at a different scale than there is uh, in rural areas. And so I do think it would be helpful for uh, for people in urban Alaska uh, to to have a better understanding for uh, the unique challenges of of rural Alaska and living in rural Alaska in general, and then also talking with people about what the changes they're seeing right now and 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 the changes that they're expecting in the future. So being based in Anchorage, what kinds of trends do you see in annual temperatures and precipitation over? short periods of time, and then also long periods of time? Well, temperature changes are uh, the easiest to, to classify, to, to, to characterize. I mean, we have a temperature every day. Um, precipitation, you know, we may only have precipitation one out of every three or four or five days. And so it becomes more difficult to, to see the trends that uh, emerge out of uh, variability for precipitation. Mm-hmm. So going back to temperature, uh, every place in Alaska has warmed. And, and we have you know, thermometer records you know, going back 100 years for most of the state. Not every location, but we have you know, up in Uktiagvik and Nome and uh, Fairbanks and you know, Juneau and Anchorage. You know, we have a hundred years or so, uh, or even in some cases more than that, 120 years mm-hmm. of temperature data. So we we know what is happening trend-wise with temperatures. Uh, precipitation is, again, it's a little bit different. We expect for precipitation generally to increase. Uh, and the reason for that is a warmer atmosphere can hold more moisture. And that's that's a well-known principle of of uh, of chemistry and physics that has been understood for hundreds of years. If you warm air up, it's like a sponge; it becomes a bigger sponge. It can hold more water, mm-hmm. and so that's the expectation. But 
between when it rains in a warmer world, you'll end up getting more evaporation and you could actually end up uh, experiencing more drought. You could have more dry periods between heavier rain periods. And so you, 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 you might end up getting kind of the worst of both worlds, more drought and more extreme precipitation. So it's, uh, that, that's kind of the theory. Um, and it's just going to take a lot of data, a lot more observations to, to see how that plays out. Do you feel like it's easier to talk to people about climate change than it was maybe earlier in your career? Yes and no. Uh, you know, most people in Alaska ha have seen the changing climate. They, mm -hmm. they, they can see where, you know, glaciers are receding. You know, they can see where a tree line is moving higher up the mountains. And, you know, whether they think it's human caused or natural or whatever, they, they've seen it. And so there's, there's never really been that much of a challenge talking to people in Alaska about uh, the changing climate. Mm -hmm. But there has been uh, a shift, you know, in the last, say, five years. The, the idea that, well, maybe it's all a natural cycle. I, I don't really hear that anymore. Uh, even, you know, pretty much everyone uh, is willing to accept that the increase in greenhouse gas emissions is the driving force behind uh, warming temperatures. And how important do you think that that personal observation is to understanding and then, you know, believing in climate change for the average person? Well, interestingly, you know, in, in the times that we live in, um, in many cases, there's there's a distrust of science and scientists and people are encouraged to do their own research, if you will. Um, I think that's a that's a that's a bad uh, thing for science in general. Uh, but that said, you know, when people are able to see these things for themselves, uh, they they don't feel like they need to make a decision of whether or not to believe the scientists or not. They can mm -hmm. see it for themselves. So so to that extent, it 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 there is benefit in 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 the fact that people can make these observations themselves and and don't need to uh, you know, to wait for a, uh, a journal article or a news story uh, to tell them that it's happening. Yeah, that, that concept of doing your own research, I think has just spun out of control. Um, and it's, it's so interesting to think that, um, you know, I believe that everybody's busy, you know, everybody's busy with whatever they decide to focus on in their life. And by that, I mean, that not everybody is a scientist, not everybody is a climatologist. And it is kind of up to say the climatologist to share with people their knowledge and data that they have accumulated in their work, their day-to-day -day work. But to think that you can be an average person, and I shouldn't say average person, just somebody who's not a climatologist. And maybe, you know, you work a nine to five shift that's not in science. And then you're going to come home and watch a couple of YouTube videos. And then all of a sudden you're an expert. One of the interesting things about weather and climate, uh, which is different than most other science disciplines, is that everyone experiences it. Mm -hmm. Every time you walk out your door, you feel the temperature. If it's raining, you feel the rain. 
when you're you look up you see the clouds and you filter that through a lifetime of experiences and so to to a large degree everyone has this huge collection of baseline knowledge now we we tend to only remember notable things right we remember when it was really cold we don't remember when it was average we remember a big rain or a big snow we don't remember when it was partly cloudy mm -hmm. so i think people feel a kind of a, a special connection to weather and climate data that that they maybe don't with other scientific data you know if i were to ask someone how they felt about you know uh, dark matter or dark energy or or quantum mechanics most people probably have never given any thought and, and or don't have any exposure to it mm -hmm. but but there is this this kind of unique place that weather and climate uh, has in our in our own experiences yeah that's super interesting that we are all even just passively experiencing it right now that said you know atmospheric scientists climatologists you know we we have you know specialized training in in, in interpreting, you know, what, what these things mean and, and why they occur mm -hmm. um, and, and not just looking at them or experiencing them. So, you know, so what to, to make out of this uh, collection of data, you know, that's really where the value, of course, uh, from the, the scientific community uh, comes in. And that, that's just something that, that, that most people don't have uh, the, the training to, uh, to do. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple questions about your social media, your Twitter. Mm -hmm. So just letting you know that I'm going to switch gears here for a second, but I'll bring us right back. Okay. You actively post about climate change on Twitter. And right now you have about 28,000 followers. What's it like to consistently talk about the climate on social media? Well, there are different, uh, there are different tracks that people take to talk about climate and climate change on Twitter or other social media. My track is is as a, a data hound, is as someone to post, you know, this is what's happened, this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, I don't delve a lot into, you know, oh, th here's this long range model says this might happen or this is uh, what we expect, uh, you know, precipitation patterns to look like in 75 years. Mm -hmm. uh, or I don't I don't really delve into policy uh, because that's really outside of, of, of my area of expertise, you know, but I do like to provide information and information in map form. Um, my educational background originally is in geography and cartography. And, you know, I've, I've spent many years uh, making maps and and doing kind of map communication. And, you know, the old saying that a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I really think a map is worth, you know, two or five or 10 times that number of words. You know, we, we, you know, we see something in a map and there's a connection that we have with maps that, that we really don't have with, with other forms of, uh, of media or other mediums. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people, we want to know where we fit into the bigger picture. We want to know how things change across space. And there's so many times over the years I've posted something and, and people are like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. You know, So for example, in California, the summer is their dry season and the winter is their wet season. 
So I'll, I'll post some things on, you know, wet seasons, dry seasons, and, and people from California will always uh, respond that I had no idea it actually rained in the summer anywhere. I just assumed every place was was dry and sunny the entire summer. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's really interesting to, to see what people's uh, perspectives are on different regions. Uh, but it, it's it, it's important also to know that that things are different. The scales are different. The impacts are different. Uh, the variability is different uh, across space. So if you just put, you know, the temperature has risen one degree Celsius, you know, that uh, is an important data point, but it doesn't really tell people a lot of information about, uh, you know, how it varies spatially. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, from a, from a communications point of view, you know, kind of the era of scientists doing science and putting it in a journal and, you know, and maybe it'll see the light of day, you know, maybe it'll get in a in a press release or something. You know, that era is kind of over. It, it's really incumbent on scientists to, to make sure that if it's important science to kind of put it out there and to uh, to let people know, you know, what's going on. Um, and in the absence of doing that, uh, someone else will fill, will fill the void and they'll fill the void potentially with bad information and bad science. And so, you know, the, really the paradigm in many ways has, has changed such that the, uh, the, the activity of doing science really uh, requires that you communicate the science in different ways mm-hmm. uh, such that so that people uh, that ordinarily wouldn't be reached by it, uh, can, can get that information and and use it in their decision-making processes. If the era of journals is over, how does that affect peer review? Well, let me step back. The era of journals isn't over. Okay. Uh, but the, the, the era of just putting it in a journal and, and then moving on to the next project, uh, that's what I was referring to is over. So now I would say the paradigm is, is you put it in a journal, then you do a press release, you know, then you promote it on social media or, or highlight it on social media. Um, I think that's kind of the new paradigm. Um, peer review is still the, the most important way that we contribute to the collective knowledge of society. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, f- for better or for worse, and in many cases it's for worse, um, it really is the only way because uh, without that peer review, you know, bad science can can infiltrate in mm-hmm. and perhaps unknowingly, uh, you know, become a, a foundational block of a pyramid. But if that block is is weak and crumbles away, the whole pyramid comes crumbling down. So so, you know, sometimes when I teach about the philosophy of science, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell students that you know, if it didn't go through peer review, it's not science. And, and that sounds horribly elitist, uh, but it really is the best method that we have uh, to separate the wheat from the chaff. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a global map and observe climate patterns and statistics across like a thousand countries, what kind of things are you noticing? We're noticing the most dramatic changes are in high latitudes, in Arctic areas and Antarctic areas. 
the reason being uh, we're just losing snow and ice. You know, snow and ice uh, act like a big mirror. You know, when solar energy heats uh, hits snow and ice, it's mostly reflected back into space. It's like it never got here at all. When you remove snow and ice for part of the part of the year, now that solar energy is absorbed by the ground and it just and it, it heats up. It's like putting a potato in the microwave. You know, it just absorbs that that energy, and then that energy uh, is now becomes part of the global climate system, mm -hmm. and you just you just can't get rid of it. And so that's why you know we have this uh, what we call Arctic amplification. That's why we're we're uh, we're increasing more in high latitude areas, but really everywhere is experiencing changes. Whether it's sea level rise, whether it's uh, increases in drought, whether it's um, ocean acidification, you know, you know, whether it's uh, changes in, in uh, hydrology, shifting uh, agricultural regions. You know, I would I would tell students in my class, you know, you know, imagine the uh, corn belt of the of the Midwest moving north into Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, now now Canada would would control the levers of you know of the world grain you know production. Yeah, I'm not saying they, that would happen, but but just imagine if it did, mm -hmm. or imagine if instead of Ukraine being the breadbasket of Europe, it shifts over into Russia. So there's a lot of um, th there's a lot of impacts that uh, are not related uh, directly to you know glaciers melting or or permafrost thawing, but that are caused by what's happening up here in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. And aren't there over 200 weather stations throughout Alaska? There, that's, a, that's a really good question. Uh, there are many weather stations across Alaska. There are weather stations that are managed by the FAA at airports, uh, by the National Weather Service, by the um, uh, U.S. Geological Survey, by the uh, Department of Agriculture, some by the state of Alaska, uh, some by other uh, agencies, Fish and Wildlife Service, National Park Service, um, university researchers. You know, I just learned yesterday about uh, you know some weather stations that have been placed on top of glaciers, and they just they go and collect the data every couple of months. Um, mm -hmm. I just got data uh, a day before yesterday from the uh, the Barry Arm landslide. Uh, region in, in Prince William Sound that they just installed. So there's a lot of data points, but it's important to remember that for climate, you do need a long period of record. You can't just put a data station up and say, this is what the climate is like at this location, um, because you need to capture all the extremes. You know, we, we don't have average weather every day. Mm -hmm. We have uh, a range of possibilities, you know. So you can imagine if I if I have a weather station that's only in operation for one year, you know, maybe it's here in Anchorage, and the lowest temperature it records is you know minus five. Uh, I I wouldn't say oh that's as cold as it can get in Anchorage, um, because I don't have enough data to make that uh, that characterization. So so we have these two hundred you know data uh, weather stations around Alaska, but in reality. For climate purposes, you know, maybe fifty or so uh, are have a have a good climate record and are still in operation. And when I think of weather stations in Alaska, 
I think of scenes of brutal, freezing isolation, like something from an episode of The X-Files or <laughs> the movie The Thing. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, what do these stations actually look like? And what does the day-to-day -day look like? Well, there are many different kinds of stations. So the ones that are at, at most airports, they're called ASOS, Automated Surface Observation Systems. And they have a, a, a 10 meter tower for a wind, wind gauge. And they've got a special uh, you know, rain gauge and different temperature sensors and dew point sensors and you know, uh, uh, precipitation type sensors. And, you know, and those cost, you know, several tens of thousands of dollars. You can also order, you know, from Campbell Scientific or, or some other folks, um, some weather stations that you can use for research, but they won't have all those sensors. Um, they'll have maybe a data logger where you have to go and get it. Um, you know, I, I've heard any number of stories of, of, you know, bears gnawing through cables and, uh, you know, other other things happening to weather stations. Yeah, there's a weather station at, at Howard Pass where they get super high winds that the National Park Service maintains, and usually at some point in the winter, uh, the wind will just blow it over and it'll stop reporting, or or it'll it'll damage the uh, transmission tower, uh, mm -hmm. and they'll have to go back, you know, in the late spring or early summer, and the, they'll collect the data from a data logger, but it's just because it couldn't transmit anymore. So there's there's a there's an enormously wide variety of weather station and and to say what one what they look like you know it would be like saying you know what is it what does a tree look like mm -hmm. you know there's just lots of different sizes and shapes and and, and types um but they they uh you know they they, they run the gamut now uh, an important part of the uh weather and climate record in alaska and, and really kind of the the unsung hero is what's called the cooperative weather program and those are citizen observers, citizen scientists that go out every day and they look in their rain gauge and they measure the snow and they they have thermometers that record the high and the low temperature of the day. And mm -hmm. they call in the, the the weather every day. And it's a incredibly important part of, of the climate record here in Alaska and in the lower 48, but particularly here in Alaska. Um, you know, one, one of the problems we have with uh, equipment and weather stations in Alaska is, you know, they have to be maintained. So you, it's not really practical. Uh, it's done a little bit, but it's not really practical to, you know, fly a helicopter up, you know, high up on a mountain, put a weather station there and, and, and hope for the best, mm -hmm. you know, because there's high winds, there's, uh, uh, it's going to get coated in ice, rime ice, um, you know, it's going to stop transmit, it's going to get buried in snow, you, you know, wildlife, uh, just, and, and to get out there and and maintain it, repair it, whatever, is enormously expensive. So um, we generally, you know, keep them where they're they're uh, pretty accessible for maintenance purposes. So that's why we don't really see a whole lot of weather stations in Alaska, say above two thousand or two thousand five hundred feet. There, there are a few, uh, but not very many. Okay, so no situations like an episode of the X Files or the Thing. <laughs> um, well, we do have, um, like, so, uh, the national park service, they, they have a weather station at, uh, a Denali camp at 14,200 feet, um, which generally runs for the summer. And then, uh, then it usually fails or shut down, uh, in the fall. But, um, 
but that that's the exception, not the rule. And and I've seen pictures of some of these uh, fairly remote stations uh, outside of, say, Juno, up on the Juno ice field mm-hmm. uh, and some other places that it's just brutal. They get so much ice on them that you, you I'm surprised they're still standing. I would expect them to just one little breath of wind would just blow them over. And the people who work at these stations, are they um, are they there by choice or is it, you know, a situation like where maybe a disgraced cop gets <laughs> sent to, you know, a, a small town to be the sheriff? Well, so at, at the uh, automated stations, um, they're, they're just that they're automated. OK. And so they they just take a reading and they. uh you know, they now they, they mostly have uh, Iridium satellite phones and they they make a phone call and they, they send out the the observations and and they'll do it again an hour later um, at major airports. So like uh, Anchorage and Juno and Fairbanks, uh, there's typically a, a, an FAA contract observer. Mm-hmm. And so that they will um, they'll they'll kind of manually enter in and, and observe the weather, make changes typically to the cloud and visibility observations uh, if they see that it's different than the automated sensor. So that, that's typically how it goes. And in the in the communities uh, where they have uh, cooperative observers, uh, that's completely voluntary. And, and, and very often they're, you know, they're retired individuals because you need to take a reading every day. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, you know, if you're going to be, you know, gone for the winter or, you know, you're going to be, uh, you know, working remotely, say you're a North Slope worker working two weeks on, two weeks off. It just that just wouldn't work out. So, um, but no, there there's uh, uh, it, it's not a it's not a, a job that people get relegated to if they uh, <laughs> if, if they've made someone upset. Okay, so no disgraced climatologists on no. Denali. No, not at all. So you also make maps. What does your map making process look like? You know, so the, the mapping, again, it's really, uh, it, it's it's a very important part of what I do. In fact, it, it's, it's I think, the, the singular most uh, important thing I do. And, you know, and, and mapping is becoming easier with time. It used to be a pretty specialized skill uh, skill set that not very many people had uh, to be able to to navigate the the software and the the data types and and mm-hmm. and many of the intricacies. It's becoming a little bit more democratized. Um, we're not there yet, but it's um, you know I like to give the example of you know in in offices and in, in big companies, uh, 
you know, there used to be a lot of typists mm-hmm. you know, or secretaries. And we don't have that anymore because, um, you know, those the, the tasks that those people did now kind of everyone does on their own. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we're, we're kind of getting there toward mapping where everyone uh, will be able to make maps as needed. But but again, we're not quite there yet. Um, but the process for mapping, you know, is data has to have a uh, some kind of geographical attribute. You know, if, if I say, you know, oh, it was, you know, 10 degrees in, in chicken Alaska, um, you're going to think to yourself, okay, well, where's chicken? And you may or may not know where it is. Well, what if I gave you a coordinate, a latitude, or what if I said it's, it's, you know, it's in the 40 mile country and that might help you out. Or what if I said, oh, it's, well, it's not too far from the Canadian border. Mm-hmm. That might help you a little bit. Oh, it's, it's not too far from Eagle, south of Eagle. That'll help a little bit more. But if I gave you a coordinate, a latitude and longitude, you would be able to plot it instantly on a map. You could type it into Google Maps, Google Earth, uh, on your phone, and it would, it would zoom right in. So everything needs some kind of geographic reference point. And that's really where you start. Um, you know, if I've got 50 or 100 stations of data and I, I'm, I have, you know, the, the precipitation totals or the temperature averages for some period of time for all those stations, you know, as long as I've got the geographic coordinates, I can load it up into a map. And then once you're in the map, you know, you want to put in some uh, some reference uh, uh some frame of reference information. So the state of Alaska boundary, uh, maybe some rivers, maybe the road networks, maybe uh, communities, uh, lakes, uh, mountains. So you you kind of you build a story. So the story contains the familiar information in the background, and then it contains the new information mm-hmm. uh, with the climate data, and 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 having those merge together. Uh, gives people the opportunity to, uh, to to interpret or understand the data in in familiar context. And at any point, were you drawing maps? You mean like by hand? Yeah. So you know, so that's really kind of old school cartography. You know, where you would get a, a you know a drafting table and a and a spline and you know a whole marker set. Uh, or pencil set, um, mm-hmm. you know, that really kind of mostly ended in, say, uh, the late 1980s by 1990, probably. Okay. So even even for for uh, for someone who's not uh, a spring chicken anymore, uh, that was that kind of hand drafting of maps is a little bit before my time. And you know, if you, if you open up any book on cartography. And you and you you get a definition. The definition of cartography in almost every book is something like the art and science of map making. And you know we focus a lot now on the science of map map making, um, but there really is an art to it. Now, can you be an artist without drawing ability? <laughs> um, I personally don't have uh, any drawing ability at all. You know, I can barely draw a stick figure uh, person. Okay. Um, but you can still be artistic in, in the way you make maps. And, and that kind of artistic aspect to it can really make all the difference in, in how people perceive the information in the map. And a great example of this is, 
the, the colors that you use in a map. And there's been actually a lot of research in this. And, you know, there are certain things we, we've come to expect. We expect warm temperatures to be shown in shades of red and cold temperatures to be in shades of blue mm-hmm. and wet weather to be in shades of green and drought to be in shades of brown. Um, but but there's also still a lot of other things that we can do with colors that make people comfortable and make make information more uh, accessible and, and easy or, or in some cases not easy uh, to interpret. Uh, and it, it's always a work in progress. Um, I, I have people, you know, they'll reply back and say, you know, I hated those colors you used. Why'd you do that? Um, and. And, you know, so you can't please everyone. And then, yeah. you know, a certain fraction of the population is colorblind or, or has some degree of colorblindness. And, and that presents uh, other challenges as well. Um, but there but there really is a, uh, a an artistic component to making maps that, uh, uh, you know, that that's really the fun part, I think. And Julie Decker at the Anchorage Museum gave me a note about ghost maps and terrible maps. <laughs> what are those? So, so you know, I I have uh, you know something of an irreverent sense sense of humor, and I I like to make maps that you know that that people can kind of chuckle at. You know, let's not take ourselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. And so, I think right before Halloween, I I um, uh, I made a map of the number of ghosts per square mile, and just it was zero everywhere, <laughs> and, and the whole map was one color. Um, and I said, Hey people, just remember there's no, there are no ghosts. And, you know, people enjoyed that. It was even shared by the governor of Colorado. And, and so, uh, you know, it it gives, it gives people an opportunity just to, uh, to not always be dealing with, with everything so serious. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, and then a a few years ago, I, I crunched the numbers on, uh, for seasons. I, I was actually, it was a, it was a project actually to look at which seasons, were the wettest and which ones were the driest. So like in Alaska, uh, in much of Alaska, fall is the wettest season of the year. Well, in other parts of say the lower 48, it's the driest season of the year. So I was doing some some seasonal precipitation mapping. It's like, well, well I'll just do this for the uh, for temperatures too. And so I, mm-hmm. I made a map called uh, the coldest season of the year. And it was winter for everywhere. So everything was shaded in blue. Um, and, yeah. a, and a very popular site called Terrible Maps um, which, uh, which pr- has incredibly hilarious content. Um, they, they, uh, they shared it Un- unbeknownst to me. They, they shared it. a bunch of people told me that, that they had done it and, uh, you know, it, it got, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of likes and shares and retweets and tens of thousands, I think. Um, that's great. So, yeah, so that, that's actually kind of a, uh, a little feather in the cap to be shared, uh, by terrible maps, but but again, you know, maps are uh, an important way to communicate, um, and and I think there's a lot of people that that if they had uh, the skill set to to communicate in maps, uh, that that they would they would probably go that route for for a lot of the information uh, that they that they give to people and and, and transmit. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the mapping really is, it's a lot of fun, but it's also an important way uh, to communicate. You know, people, you know, I used to, to tell students and stuff, you know, when people see a map, you know, they, they think that it's, it's sent from God, you know, that it's, 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 it's in a map, it must be true. 
it's in a map. It, it, you know, someone spent a lot of time, you know, putting this together and they probably, you know, did, it, it, it's, it's the culmination of a lot of, of research. And that can be the case, certainly. Uh, but it also is a it's a human being behind the map. And and there's, you know, with as the saying goes, you know, with with great power comes great responsibility. Spider-Man. Yeah, I've certainly made uh, some maps that uh, uh, had some egregious errors. And I had to, you know, as soon as I discovered it, you know, take it down or, or issue a retraction or something. But um, uh, but, you know, maps are yeah, maybe they're not for everyone, but they, they certainly are for me. You also track Aurora forecasts, right? Well, who doesn't love Aurora, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's yeah. kind of like, you know, seeing a moose. Who, whoever says uh, a moose again? Come on. Uh, <laughs> with the exception of people who, who are who are real into gardening and they don't like moose eating their gardens. But I mean, who has ever seen the Aurora and said, gosh, you know, I hope I don't have to deal with that again. Right. Everyone loves the Aurora. So for sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm personally interested in it. I've I've gone out any number of nights to try to catch it. And, you know, Aurora forecast, uh, for as interested as people are in it, they a lot of people don't know where to get good information. So I like to uh, to provide that. And I, I've done some maps on it. And, you know, like uh, I think here in Alaska, most people have had the experience of maybe someone coming up in the summer from from the lower 48 saying, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to my trip. Hopefully I'll see the Aurora. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to tell them, um, yeah, in the summer, uh, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, so something like, you know, the days per year where you can actually see the Aurora mm-hmm. or uh, combining that with uh, average cloud cover, you know, where wh- who's going to have the most days of the year where they're going to see uh, Aurora, um, you know, combining daylight and cloud cover and the the the, the frequency of uh, the Aurora oval where it's where it's positioned. So uh, it's something I really enjoy. And you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I enjoy it. So if you follow me online, uh, you're going to just have to you're just going to have to deal with it. And is tracking it a, um, a form of entertainment for you or is there something we can learn from the Northern Lights? You know, from a climate point of view, there's not uh, there's not really anything with uh, uh, with Aurora. I mean, there are some interesting things like there was a paper that just came out uh, recently that uh, dated when the uh, the Vikings first uh, came to uh, Eastern Canada, and they dated it to exactly a thousand years ago, the year 1021, based on uh, solar activity, uh, based on some extreme, you know, solar uh, eruptions, uh, you know, uh, CME events where uh, it it was. Uh, it affected the the growth of of, uh, of tree rings, and so they were able to, to to date precisely when when the trees were cut down to build these um, these structures uh, in Canada. So there is a little bit of a some climate detective work that can be done with solar activity, and there is some indication that during the peaks of solar cycles, um, there might be a little bit more thunderstorm activity. Um, so so the, so. You could you could stretch it and say yeah there's there's some climate nexuses, nexuses but uh, but for me it's just uh, personal interest. Mm-hmm. And how should we think about new major weather events like bomb cyclones? The, the way that I like to think about it is uh, frequency, intensity, and duration. Mm-hmm. And 
it can be hard to nail these things down in real time. So, for example, the, the great Pacific Northwest heat wave of late June and early July of 2021, the question was immediately asked, is this, is this a fingerprint of climate change? Is this the new normal? Is this, you know, what is, how do we put this in a context? Mm-hmm. And a lot of work was done in near real time to say, you know, what what is the likelihood of this happening, you know, pre-warming, today, you know, future warming. And basically what they came up with was in a non-warming environment, it was basically almost impossible to happen. In the warming environment, it still is extremely unlikely, but it's now within the range of possibility. So maybe like a, I think it was like a 200 year probability recurrence interval event. So, mm-hmm. so whereas before it was, you know, in the tens or hundreds of thousands of years possibility event. Uh, so basically not possible. And that's how I like to think about it. You know, where, where does it fall in the range of, 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 of possible, of possibilities? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in some cases it wasn't possible before and now it is. And in other cases, it might have happened once every five years or every 10 years. And now it's happening every two years or three years. Um, and in other ca- cases, it's stronger than it than it was before. In other cases, it might linger longer. So instead of a storm kind of moving through in a day, maybe it's going to stick around for two or three days. And while it may not be as intense, the impacts will be greater. Um, and so disentangling all these things uh, is not easy. And it's it requires a lot of uh, brain power and computing power, and so uh, and so that's that's something that a lot of people are are working on. And but it, it's unless you've actually focused on an individual event, it's hard to say does this event a fingerprint of a changing climate. You really have to to dive into it mm-hmm. and, and do some 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 kind of in depth analysis. That's not to say our default position should always be no. It's not, but. You know, in real time, when people say, "Oh, is, is should we expect this in the future, or is is this climate change?" Um, you know, I, I tend to demur until I, I have more information. And I, I kind of wait to hear uh, what other people have to say about it. Mm-hmm. And real quick, what is a bomb cyclone? Well, a bomb cyclone is where the the the, the low pressure, the lowest pressure in a, in a in a storm system. Uh, drops by, I believe it's 24 millibars in 24 hours. Um, and, you know, millibars is, is a metric unit of air pressure, and most people aren't that familiar with it. But basically, it, it's, it's a rapid deepening of a storm. And it, it ha- it's always happened. Uh, we're in an area where it happens fairly frequently. Mm-hmm. But again, the question is, is it happening more frequently now? And when it does what we call bomb out, does it end up being a lower pressure than it would have in a non-changing uh, environment? So, you know, so the, the the big cyclone that that affected the Pacific Northwest uh, a few weeks ago, you know, it bottomed out at like 942 millibars, which was a record for that part of the Pacific Ocean for for any month, you know, any day, any year that we have that we have records for, um, and you know, and so. Again, is that the fingerprint of climate change? And and it very well may be. Uh, we just need to to do a little bit more uh, digging and, and develop you know counterfactuals and 
and see what do what does the theory say and and how did this uh, line up with, with our theories and if it does line up with the theories then it's easier to 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 do that kind of attribution you know if it doesn't we we have to to, to think a little harder about it if you could name a storm what would you name it that's an interesting question because there are several of the the national meteorological associations in Europe uh, they do name uh, regular cyclones so the, uh, the the British do the French do um, in the US the weather channel names winter storms and they, they they have an a through Z you know list the National Hurricane Center names tropical st- cyclones so tropical storms and hurricanes mm-hmm. uh, in actually every every tropical uh, forecasting organization in the world, almost everyone names them. Uh, well, the, the Pacific, the Eastern Pacific, the Western Pacific, Eastern Pacific, Southern Pacific, and the Atlantic. In the Indian Ocean, they're uh, Southern Indian Ocean, they're, they're just numbers. Uh, and and may, I think some other places they might just be numbers. But, uh, but whenever the, the subject is broached about naming storms, you know, in Alaska, for example, um, usually people roll their eyes uh, because it, it's, it, it, in many ways, it's kind of a hopeless endeavor because there are so many storms. Uh, and you could have one storm that spawns another storm, which is very common. It's called, uh, you know, forming a, what we call a triple point low pressure. Uh, and, and it's basically the same storm or, or, or it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, an offspring of the original storm. But do we count that as one storm or do we count that as, as two storms? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've, I've asked people this, you know, meteorologists, and, and I get different answers. So I think if we're going to name storms, we, we should name it, you know, you know, storm A or storm B or storm one or storm two and, and, and just leave it at that. And you never have to uh, <laughs> retire storm names. And so mm-hmm. or you would give it, um, you know, I. I'm a big fan of, uh, of using uh, indigenous place names uh, and uh, indigenous Alaska Native uh, references whenever I can. So uh, to, to do something along those lines for naming storms. But other than that, uh, naming storms is kind of a, a, a futile exercise. And we read about and hear about how an increase in three degrees Celsius is the tipping point. Why three degrees Celsius? Well, you know, I think everyone has a little bit different answers, but at at three degrees Celsius, when you think about the number of people that would be displaced just by sea level rise. So if you ignore all the other impacts, just the displacement for sea level rise, you know, the, the, the dollar figure to move all those people is is astronomical. Um, it's, it's just, it's it's practically too much to imagine. So, um, so there's that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and not to mention, well, now how do you feed the world's population if you now have less reliable irrigation for agriculture, if your agricultural zones are now shifting into areas that have, uh, marginal soils or poor soils, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you, how do you deal, you know, and even even things like having the pollinators, you know, what what if your your butterflies and your bees, you know, can't survive to, to pollinate uh, crops 
Mm -hmm. you know, what happens then? And then, you know, what happens when, you know, animals can move a little faster than, can move faster than, than vegetation, but vegetation can't move very fast. So if the climate changes faster than the vegetation can, can move northward to adapt, then it just, it's just going to die out. And, and so there's, you know, I think three degrees represents a number where the accumulated impacts uh, would be, you know, basically uh, unmanageable. Mm-hmm. And so that's that, that's kind of the uh, uh, that that's my impression of why three uh, is chosen as as kind of the, the most significant number. What causes the majority of climate change? Well, that's a that's a that's a complicated question, and you know I I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, you know, for what the uh, what the distribution of greenhouse gas emissions are, uh, but I would say that you know you know even if you live off the grid and are are contributing relatively little individually to uh, greenhouse gas emissions, you know at least in this country, you know our our uh, you know, entire, you know, way of life in, involves emitting, you know, greenhouse gases at a certain level a, a, as a society. And so to that extent, there's not really a large uh, difference or differentiation between individual and 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 collective uh, greenhouse gas contributions. Um, so that, that may not be a, a great answer. But it is, I think, a, an important point to make that, you know, that, that being part of the solution to, to lowering greenhouse gas emissions uh, involves more than, than just cutting back personal consumption. Mm-hmm. If we don't make a real effort to mitigate our use of things that cause climate change, like fossil fuels, what does the world look like? It's it's a combination of, of different disciplines that are trying to estimate what the world would look like uh, under various scenarios. So, you know, from the climate scenario, we can estimate or we can try to project, you know, what the glaciers of Greenland and Antarctica will do, mm-hmm. uh, what the sea level rise will do, you know, how much uh, carbon dioxide would be absorbed in the oceans, you know, and the oceanographers and the marine biologists would look at what the entire trophic system of the ocean would look like in a warmer world. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, economists are going to look at, you know, how is this going to affect, you know, global production of goods and services. The anthropologists are going to look at how it's going to affect uh, different cultures. The, you know, defense people are going to look at which areas of the world may become unstable, politically unstable, because they, you know, they can't feed themselves, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it really is a, it's a, it's a multidisciplinary endeavor to see what the world will look like in a, uh, in a warmed scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that I've, I've thought about a lot. And when climatologists are asked about the future, we always get these responses about climate change, like more severe storms, rising temperatures, warming oceans, the extinction of different species. But how do we see the individual person's everyday life changing? 
That's a difficult question, and it, it's going to be uh, highly dependent on where you live. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw someone post uh, recently that uh, you know there may be places in the Middle East that are that become uninhabitable uh, because it's too hot. So you know, there, there's a point where the dew point, or, or more precisely, the wet bulb temperature, is so high that you won't be able to your body won't be able to to keep itself cool enough, evaporate sweat off of your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in those areas, it may be uninhabitable. Um, the, the, you know, the impact on individual persons where there's now not enough water to grow crops uh, means that those places maybe functionally become abandoned or they uh, they have to transition to something else. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're in a place where the sea level is going to encroach, uh, the ocean's going to encroach, uh, you know, the individual person's going to have to move. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it really is is so location dependent, but it's, it is important to notice that everyone will feel the impacts, but but they will feel them differently. And in, in many cases, they'll feel them quite acutely. And ultimately, you know, if, if a seawall has to be built to protect, you know, New York City for the next 50 years, everyone in this country will have to contribute paying for it. You mm-hmm. know, it'll, it'll be, you know, a federal project. So people in rural Alaska, you know, part of their income taxes will be going to protect New York City. So we, we all share in these costs. And so even people that may be, you know, in Kansas or, or some other place that, that aren't going to have uh, some of the more acute impacts, Although they might, uh, they're going to be paying for uh, mitigating impacts uh, in other places, you know. And, and we're just talking about now a country that 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 is fairly well resourced uh, to to pay for some of these uh, mitigation efforts in a relatively short term. Of course, most areas of the world can't afford to do that. Mm-hmm. I feel like the way we talk about climate change, including the news and how we talk about it with each other has transitioned from educational to brutal and matter of fact. Have you noticed that too, or is that just me? Uh, that's an interesting observation. You know, it's, um, I've always been in the, I guess, not always, but I've been in the more matter of fact uh, camp for a while, just because it's it's been so obvious for so long. Uh, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel new. Mm-hmm. at all. Uh, you know, it feels like something that has always been there. I've, I've always known about it. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes you, I guess you think that everyone ha- has that same experience and they've always known about it. And they've always heard about it. So, um, but, you know, as a scientist, there is, there is a little bit of a, of a challenge about, you know, which side of the fence are you going to be on as you're reporting on these things? And, and so, for example, if I'm a climate scientist with uh, Sierra Club, and, and by the way, this is nothing at all uh, negative about the Sierra Club, but if a climate scientist with the Sierra Club came out with a study, a lot of people would, would kind of immediately feel that maybe they weren't, they were, they weren't sharing all the information or maybe their, their interpretations are are guided in one direction versus being more objective. And the same would go if there was a climate scientist, say, for the Heritage Foundation. You know, you would feel maybe I'm not getting the whole story. 
mm-hmm. or maybe the maybe the conclusions are 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 slanted uh, one way and 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 not fully objective. And so, you know, as as an average everyday climate scientist, you know that that is a little bit of a concern that that you want to be viewed uh, that 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 your analysis you want your analysis to be viewed objectively. Mm-hmm. Now, the other side of that coin is a lot of uh, prominent climate scientists say, you know, that that ship has sailed, you know, as as kind of holders of special knowledge, if you will, uh, that that we have a, a special duty to really tell people how bad it is. Um, so, so there is a uh, there is a, a varying of, of philosophies on that, uh, how to communicate things like in, in this realm. Well, Brian, that that does it for my questions. You know, I, I want to thank you for doing your best to answer difficult questions. You know, there were a few moments in this conversation where, you know, your immediate response was, wow, that's, that's a difficult question or that's like basically almost impossible to answer, but I'm going to do my best. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Um, scientists should, should always do their best to answer difficult questions, uh, even if the answers. Uh, might be unsatisfying, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I, I was real happy to uh, to participate, and uh, and I thought the questions were great. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit AnchorageMuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors.